Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I began last year called Brothers and Teachers. If you like what you hear today, please do visit bowendwelly.substack.com, click the little heart to like this episode, and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book, Freedom at All Costs, when it comes out for just the cost of shipping, along with all the other benefits of becoming a paid subscriber. Today I'm speaking with Charlie Engel. Charlie is an ultra-endurance athlete, author of an outstanding memoir called Running Man, the subject of a documentary film called Running the Sahara, and the founder of the 5-8 Dead Sea to Everest Project, in which he will travel under his own power from the lowest to the highest points on all seven continents. Charlie is also one of the most accomplished ultramarathon runners in the world, having placed in hundreds of races in dozens of countries around the globe. Charlie's motivation to run and tackle extreme adventures stems directly from his battle with addiction to drugs and alcohol. Charlie was a drinker and a heavy user of cocaine for many years and has been in recovery since July 23, 1992. He credits a large part of his recovery to the purposeful devotion and emotional release. Note those two phrases, purposeful devotion and emotional release that he experiences while running. He and I have a lot in common, both in terms of our experience with addiction as well as with running. We met through my friend Todd Eichler, who I met through my friend and previous podcast guest Adam Gaynor, who I originally met through Everyman, which is one of the leading organizations for men's work and men's groups. If you are a man and you're not yet familiar with the world of men's work and you'd like more community, connection, and emotional depth in your life, I highly recommend finding a men's group to participate in. Before we get started, I want to say thanks. There are now 750 of you, subscribers to my Substack, that is, and many of you have also chosen to become paying supporters. Of all the communities that I've been involved in, joined, started, and led over the years, this community of readers, listeners, subscribers, and supporters, of fellow writers, and also of the broader world of writing, is the most gratifying, the most real, and the most of myself of them all. After something like four years of immersing myself in the world of writing, it's incredibly gratifying to find myself in it. And that doesn't mean anything beyond just exactly that, that I feel like I am in it, I'm doing it, and that you're all here with me. And so I want to say thank you. I appreciate you all so much. And as those of you who have felt to inquire know, my door is open. And so if there's something you'd like to talk about, just ask. I've been mostly a vegetarian for many years, but I've been feeling to eat more fish lately in particular. And it turns out that my friend Tom Gore has a salmon fishing business and he sells direct. So if you like salmon, consider getting it from my buddy at tomswildalaskan.com. 
I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. He's a good friend. He's a great guy. It's great fish. And he also happens to be a reader and a supporter. So thanks, Tom. Speaking of paid subscribers, a huge thanks to everyone else who has become a paying subscriber recently, including Mary, Tommy, Sean, Michael, John, Zoe, Bill, King Ultra Zero One, Julie, Tom, Danielle, Jean, Volker, Taryn, my father Duncan, Anthony, Samir, Peter, and Zach. And to the other Substackers who recommend my work, check them out when you get a chance. Scott Britton, Andy Johns, Chris Ryan, Michael Moore, David Katz Nelson, and Brad Barons in particular. Thank you. It's great to be part of the Substack community with all of you. If you do enjoy this episode, please do take a moment to click the little heart button to like this post here on Substack. It just occurred to me the other day that one way to think of the of this little heart button is as a net promoter score. Now, some of you may have heard of that or not, but in any case, what it means is that your click on that little heart is the answer to the question. If somebody asked you about it, would you recommend this piece to a friend? It's also just kind of fair play for the work that I do in producing this writing and podcast. All right, we're just about to get started. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes or just consider this one, which is, what is your own relationship with addiction and addictive behavioral patterns? Even if you've never been addicted to anything at all, although that's doubtful, what do you know or think you know about the mechanisms of addiction? Most of what I thought I knew for most of my life was wrong. And it's been highly informative, useful, and interesting to get more familiar with what addiction really is and how it affects just about all of us. And with that, I hope you enjoy this interview with Charlie Engel. He's a great guy. He's funny and a uh, great storyteller and adventurer, and he's become a friend. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Cheers. Charlie Engel, welcome, my friend, to Brothers and Teachers. Thanks so much for being here this morning. We were introduced by a friend, but the way that I think of our connection, even though this is the first time we've really met, is through running. I became a middle-aged runner in my 40s. Prior to then, I always thought of running as this thing that I just saw people like making bad looking faces doing when I was growing up in San Francisco, people running along the sidewalk with that painful look on their face, jogging, right? When did you start running? Has it been a lifelong thing for you or did it come in later? Man, it's so interesting to hear you say, and I forget sometimes that not everybody in the world likes to run. And what I say often to audiences is that I'll get them to raise their hands and volunteer if they absolutely hate running. And unless I'm literally speaking to a running group, 60, 70, 80% of the audience will raise their hands. (laughs) And I typically write, I'm like, oh, okay, so you hate fresh air, you hate birds and trees and being outside. And because I'm teasing, but look, we all ran when we were kids. You know, the minute you could run, you did run. Absolutely. Yeah. 
your parents probably told you not to run. And unfortunately, those of us who are parents probably said the same thing to our kids. And if I could go back and do it again, I would actually tell them to run everywhere, despite the dangers that may lurk, maybe not in the street. Okay. But, <laughs> but otherwise, it's a thing that we are naturally meant to do. And then we go to middle school and we run into a PE teacher that uses running as a punishment. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this little thing switches in our brains that says, oh, running is bad. Running is hard. And when I do something wrong, my coach is going to make me run. I'm not using PTSD from your PE teacher, <laughs> but the fact is it turns into this almost negative thing. And people like yourself who later in life, over 40, find running, I consider you to be incredibly lucky because I can tell you when I really got serious about running in my late 20s and early 30s, I'd like to have some of those years back because I way overtrained. I run a lot of miles and my body feels it some days right yeah. now. But I think the mentality of it, just to focus on that for two seconds, is running isn't what people think it is. Running doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be hard. Mm-hmm. When I help people start running programs, I do nothing but start them with walking and jogging a little bit. And instead of looking at your watch for mileage, we focus just on time. So most people can be like, okay, I've got 30 minutes today. I can go 15 minutes that direction and 15 minutes back home. And you should feel energized and amazing, not like you need to go lay down and take a two hour nap. I appreciate all that. And it brings up several things for me. First of all, I remember I was listening to you and uh, Deepak Chopra talk the other day from maybe it was last year and just something you said in there that kids love to run obviously. And part of what got me going in my forties was Chris McDougall's book born to run, which makes the point that we all evolved to run and Despite the fact just how I had grown up in the city and running on concrete in the city is the least pleasant, least fun, kind of most painful way to run, at least in my experience. No wonder it didn't look so great to me. A skateboard is a better vehicle for the city. I don't know. Uh, But but I would also say to you, it is about culture. And I know we agree on this. The skateboard culture, not that you don't skateboard by yourself, but it's most fun when you've got a couple of buddies and you guys are doing your thing and you feed off each other's energy. The same yeah. thing happens. I mean, I belonged to the New York Roadrunners Club for many years and mm. I was still living in North Carolina, but I would go up to a dozen races every year and I'd run in the park with groups of 50 yeah. or 100 people. And like, that's powerful. And I tell people all the time, man, it's not even mm. running that I like that much. It's stopping. It's the feeling that you get of having done something occasionally there's those moments while you're doing it where Mm. nothing hurts it's a beautiful day or maybe it's not maybe it's a snowy rainy day whatever it is but you're in that moment and you're experiencing it and it's powerful and you like yeah you can't get that sitting on the sofa you can't get it in a coffee shop you just can't get it anywhere else yeah well there's something so primal and human and simple in the physicality of running because we did evolve to move and walk and run in particular that uh, it just is such a natural thing to do and of course it speaks to our 
cultural alienation from all things physical that it's become something that we're not used to doing that and that is used as punishment and is looked at as a task etc but it's something that even with all of the other sports that i've been involved in through the course of my life which range from rock climbing to long distance kite surfing to paragliding in the mountains, like serious paragliding, sailing, open water swimming, skiing, you name all kinds of things. Running, for me, I get the most bang for my buck. It's just so simple and it feels great. It's amazing. I mean, pretty much all of us, no matter where you live, you can make a decision right now and 60 seconds from now, you can have your shoes on and be out the door moving your body. And Right. That's not true with even cycling and I mean, yeah. or anything else. So I love that freedom. And look, the other thing I say all the time is it's cultural exploration for me. You, mm-hmm. you yes. see a city, even your own city, in yes. a whole different way when you're on your feet going through it than if you're in a car or a bus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something there about human scale and human speed movement. That is very beautiful and also, again, very primal and very human. And when we move through the world on our own two feet, whether it's walking or running or hiking or trekking, we see the world in the way that we evolved to see it. I have experienced that, man, in so many places. I mean, even back in the day when I had this conference business, that I built from between 2000 and when I finally sold in 2015, I used to take people out running in the cities that we would visit as a way to just show them, hey, this is where we're at. You want to get outside and see the place? Let's go for a run around the city. It's just a great way to get to know a new place. Well, another point is if you're in a foreign country, in particular, one that is maybe a little more impoverished, if you're where that might be, South America or Africa or somewhere, coming into a village on foot changes everything. You come in in your land cruiser or your Range Mm -hmm. Rover, even if it's an old beat up one, you have separated yourself from the people who live there. And if you come into that same village with a backpack on, they don't know if you have money, they don't know, they don't know anything about you. And there's a different approach. I mean, I've felt it dozens of times in my life where more curious about you instead of just supposing you're some Westerner there to, I don't know what. Uh, and typically a lot of those places, people will come at you maybe with a handout if you get out of a vehicle. Right. But right. if you're on foot with a backpack and you're dirty because you've been on the trail for three days, yeah. they tend to invite you into their home to have a meal well it puts you on the same footing literally for sure yeah Yeah, i mean there's so much to talk about really with this realm of just the basic physicality of running and a movement and of exploration and adventure and the and the nature of a journey right and that's certainly something that you've gotten into with your running is the distance and over time I've experienced that myself in some ways with some long distance walking over the course of multiple weeks and uh, traveling hundreds, even more than a thousand K by kite along the coast of Brazil, for example, camping along the way. Something about making a journey over the course of many days under your own power, right? That's so powerful. It becomes a pilgrimage. You know what I mean? Like any journey is 
kind of a pilgrimage. And I certainly sense that in your account of running across the Sahara. I know that was several years ago now, but how do you carry that today? And is there something that you have in your present that feels similar to that, that you're aiming for? You said a lot right there. First of all, I would challenge anybody listening to this to think about the most meaningful and impactful moments in your life, pretty much all of them revolve around hardship. Hmm. (laughs) And whether it's in your business life, in your marriage, in your family, it can take any form. But we latch onto those moments that are impactful because they hit us really hard emotionally. Running or hiking, trekking long distances has a similar effect in that without a doubt, you're going to hit moments where you will say to yourself, what the F was I thinking? Why am I out here? It's raining. I got blisters. This hurts and that hurts. And I miss my family, whatever. All the things that we say. Interestingly, those are the moments that many years or decades later, those are the ones I'm going to think about. I'm going to return to in my mind. I'm going to talk about if there's anybody that wants to hear me talk about it. Because mm-hmm. nobody remembers the things that are easy. Right. And so too often in this world of life hacking that we live in, mm-hmm. sure, there's some hacks that are worthwhile, but a hack to me is very often a shortcut to yeah. something that getting to that objective is way more meaningful if you fought the battles along the way rather than took a shortcut to the finish. I mean, again, it's human nature that we would feel that way. And I think these long expeditions allow me to disconnect from the world in a way that I can't in running a marathon or even running a hundred miler, you're still connected. And when you get off the grid and you realize that you don't need this and the world will actually survive without you for a few days, right? And heaven forbid, you don't answer the email or the text right right away that is the ultimate freedom to me it's so much of the reason that i still do these things the sahara for those who don't know in short i ran two marathons every day for 111 consecutive days across yeah. the world's biggest desert who knew africa was that big Probably <laughs> it's bigger the other way too man north to south <laughs> right and so uh, and this journey was from Senegal all the way across Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt. Incredible, and man. I, love, yeah. we, I raised about $6 million for clean water, and Matt Damon was my partner. And like, it's the movie's still actually on iTunes. You can get it for like three bucks on iTunes, running yeah. the Sahara, so if anyone wants to watch it. But mm. I am a recovering addict. And the beauty of that expedition is that very much like most of life, That expedition began with a great plan (laughs) that totally fell apart in almost no time. Because just like a business or whatever, I'd written down all the things that could go wrong and what I would do about it. It just never occurred to me that they would all go wrong at the exact same time. (laughs) It's 140 degree ground temperatures. We have a support vehicle blow up. Two of my support people quit. My two teammates both are on IV drips because they're so dehydrated. Like everything is. You had to change your route. I'm sure you're right. Everything. Yeah. Everything. And what I realized then, though, 
Bowen was the nature of the fact that I had forgotten that addiction and recovery is all about focusing on what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I recognized Mm -hmm. I was so attached to the outcome. Mm -hmm. I felt so much pressure because millions of dollars were invested. A lot of people were Mm -hmm. counting on me. Like, and all I could think about was getting all the way across the desert and being done with this thing. And on day eight, I woke up and realized that I needed to focus on the miles that were right in front of me. And yeah. that that's the yeah. only thing I could do. And yeah. that, that switch is what made the journey successful. And one other question that you asked was how mm-hmm. did I feel as it was ending? I don't know if you want to speculate, but I'll, actually, <laughs> I'll just jump to it. One would think that after running 5,000 miles, you would be happy. You would be relieved. You would be all these other things. And I was actually devastated. Uh, that's, that is the exact word that was in my head yeah. right now. Sad. You looked devastated. I was so sad because feel- it's a recognition when something comes to the end, the adage of it being the journey, not the destination. There's all those cliches, but like the end was anticlimactic. It's like, yeah. okay, here we are. I'm going to put my feet in the water. We're done. It was all those terrible amazing wonderful awful days Mm -hmm. along the way that are the things that i remember and Mm -hmm. the end is kind of a blur and i'm certainly glad that we finished and it was successful i go back all the time in my mind and photos and i haven't watched the movie in years but i don't really need to i mean that was life-changing for me yeah wow man like i said that word devastated as you said it was in my head because that's what I felt through you there watching the end of running the Sahara. And by the way, I did just recently watch it. And for anyone listening, I absolutely recommend it. It's a beautiful documentary, very well made and a great story. A devastation at the end. You know what I think it is, as you said, all these adages about the journey is the way, et cetera. Well, man, there are cliches for a reason because that full immersion in something so real is something that we don't get a lot of in regular life. And so finally getting into that. Now, I don't know if you necessarily have to go 110 days across the Sahara to get there. (laughs) For me, it's usually on the the day eight or something like that. But, you know, it does take more than just a couple of days. I totally agree with that. For me, like a two-week trip is enough to kind of get in. And then the end of that, it is anticlimactic. And it's like, okay, well, we're done. That was it. That was what it was. And can't duplicate it. It's just part of you. And that's it. And it is kind of sad. Before you move on, I want to say one more thing. It's funny because I know you're a forward-looking guy. I've really taken to this word integration in the last few years. Some of Mm. it is because of everything from psychedelics Mm -hmm. to uh, what I recognized even in myself at times and certainly in my younger self and the Sahara actually qualifies in a way. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to integrate the lessons Mm -hmm. that I had learned along Mm -hmm. the way into my life. So it became a singular experience that began to slip away as soon as I was done. Like I was getting the benefits from it in the way that I was hired to speak. I was getting to do media. I was getting to do some things as a result of it, but I didn't really understand how to take what I had learned within yourself. You mean integrate it into my life and how do I do that? And so Mm -hmm. today 
pretty much everything that I do, I try to ask myself, mm. how am I using this? How am I going to integrate it? Psychedelics and addiction recovery are a big deal, but mm. I'm very careful about saying this isn't about going and buying some mushrooms or whatever and doing them on your own. This is about identifying a problem, having a professional to help you under very strict therapeutic guidelines. And then very often people who have those, I like to use the psychedelic uh, idea as uh, an example, because very often people do have powerful moments when of insight happens. yes right uh, but then if they don't if they don't integrate that with a professional most of the time the, what yeah. they find themselves doing is going back to the well again and again looking for that peak experience right but it's not going to change their life until they figure out what to do with it it's like trying to remember a dream if you don't write it down yeah. And yeah. ideally talk about it or write about it or something like that it's going to disappear and you're going to be doing what was that thing i yeah yeah, that's the nature of big projects and big things. I mean, you said you had an exit in 2015. Mm -hmm. I'm sure on some level that was a relief. I'm sure you had a lot of mixed emotions also. I mean, it's the end of a long path that got you to a place where hopefully you achieved some goals that you would set for yourself in your life. But it's also the end of something and recognizing that. Now, sometimes I know some people who were very happy to finally be done with their business <laughs> or their marriage or whatever it might be. Right, but, right. Exit can mean various know. things. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, that's a whole nother story and we could talk about that, but there's a couple other pieces that came up along the way here. I love this integration and I'd love to talk about that. But before we leave the Sahara, I got to ask a question for a young friend of mine, Perry, who's like, 12 i was telling him that i was going to interview you and he said boy that's a long way uh did he ever get bored didn't you get bored man what were you well, listening to there in your headphones you can tell him that ultra runners as a group are not a particularly bright group of people so you <laughs> that's know, the answer isn't it it helps to not be very smart uh, <laughs> no but i will say that the answer to that is actually, and maybe he'll relate to this, whether it's in school or whatever. If you think about your whole school day, six classes and all that and in the morning, you think about, oh, my God, it's going to be such a long day. Right. But if you focus on, OK, I've got to just get through this next class. That's all I'm focusing on is get through my nine o'clock class. And that's the way I approached the Sahara is I had a support vehicle and I did this on purpose. I would tell the support vehicle, as you saw on the film, right. to go 5K or 10K ahead. You leapfrogs and you run to right. the vehicle and yeah, you stretch the rubber band. There was this yo-yo all day. So there was always something to look forward to. There's something about, especially in the open desert, being able to spot the vehicle out there in the distance and you're yeah. running towards it. So it's shocking yeah. how brain occupying something like that can actually be. You can also tell him, though, that my kids filled, an, as you saw in the film, too, an iPod with about 1,500 songs and 
it was sort of my first experience with running with music. Like I uh -huh. had been a purist before then, like, Oh, uh, yeah. I don't I need bet you music. wish it like, was 150,000 songs by the time you yeah. got done. Yeah. With that, though. yeah. No doubt. <laughs> so, I mean, plus the place was so beautiful. Yeah. We went yeah. through, you, you saw a few on the film, but we went through yeah. about 200 villages along the way. Oh, wow. And so, oh. It wow. never got old seeing yeah. all these kids who didn't know we were coming. They didn't know why we were there. We didn't right. speak the same language. They're right. still wondering today who the hell were those yeah, people right, right. that ran through our village. And there was yeah. something great about that. That's the thing, man, that comes to mind for me is that, well, people who haven't traveled much or spent much time in the outdoors in particular or just to turn it around i mean my own experience has been that even if i'm just out for a run but certainly once i'm in a longer distance kind of experience the natural beauty and fascination of the world mm -hmm. pulls me along and yeah. sure there are moments when i might be struggling and wishing it was over or whatever and then there are other moments when i'm just kind of in dreamland and hours go by and then there are others when i'm very much in the like instant to instant to moment to moment seeing everything and all of that is part of the natural elasticity of our conscious experience which is built and evolved to do exactly what you're doing in that mode so Bored, not really. This no. is what I no, beautifully <laughs> said. Well, the other thing about ultra running, and you know this, but runners in general, and in particular ultra runners, you are constantly monitoring. It's like you have a scan going through your mm -hmm. body the entire time, looking for little <laughs> mm. malfunctions that are going on, whether yeah. it's tendonitis or because you can't run that far in those circumstances and not have. Yeah. some injuries and so it's interesting how also terrifying and brain occupying that can be and mm -hmm. i think there's a great trust that goes on people will ask how is it possible to run five thousand miles in those circumstances and i'm like it's not it's only mentally possible <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. you can't train for it like i'm not an exceptional runner i am maybe an exceptional stubborn human being with just enough physicality and physical ability to allow my brain to keep pushing my body along i mean you saw me running in that film there's nothing pretty about that like there was a day a long time ago when I was running some fast marathons or maybe I was running track in high school. Where and I'm you had to form. Running. Yeah. Yeah. I right. look pretty good. High legs. Right. Right. I'm cruising. Those days are long gone. I <laughs> yeah, got the, I feel you. I got the old man shuffle and everything is about low impact and just being conservative in the approach to it. You also saw in the film. Now, films aren't real life, but. Sure. I was both the villain and the hero in the film. And that was part of the journey too, though. It's just like yeah. everything else. It's not just a run. First yeah. of all, nobody wants to see anybody run for 12 hours a day. There's nothing interesting about that after about yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Right. So if there's not something else to talk about, then the movie itself is going to be pretty boring. Well, it was not a solo effort. It was a team effort. And I mean, I've been part of group efforts like that as well. And I've experienced the human dynamics. So you're going to get into it with people. There's going to be leadership and following and testing, and there's going to be all sorts of stuff that happens. There's something 
that came to mind as you were talking there. You mentioned like the monitoring that goes on. I mean, mm-hmm. this is kind of nitty gritty in terms of running. And you start to feel something happening. Like you start to feel your knee, something getting tight or your ankle or something like that. And I've had this actually happen several times now where while I'm running, you know, I can feel this something start to develop and I can consciously activate different muscles or certain parts of my musculature or physiology and change what's happening on the mm-hmm. fly, right? By using different muscles, kind of moving things around as I'm going. I mean, it's a kind of a new experience, but that must be something that people do. I don't know. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, dude. Well, we have a brilliant piece of equipment here that is way smarter than we are. And I think that those little adjustments that we make, also the setting aside of fear If you're in a race, if you're running a marathon, there's nothing worse than being at 16 miles and feeling like your hamstring starting to tighten up. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you do when that happens? And I think I have the answer to that, but I don't know if a lot of people do. And so part of the point is, just like you would with a business or a relationship, you try to anticipate what may go wrong. You also recognize that there are going to be times when you have to push aside the fear and allow yourself to just keep moving and let your body and those little adjustments yes. that you're making, some of them are unconscious, some mm-hmm. are conscious, mm-hmm. and let your body recuperate. Very yeah. often it's about, I mean, we're underfueled, maybe our electrolytes are off. I mean, it's almost always the answer is eat something, drink something, and walk or slow down for a minute and things your pain level might go from a 10 to an eight, <laughs> but that's a big difference if you're in the middle of something. I wanted to make another point that I yearn for those moments in a hundred miler. I've never mm. done a hundred miler that was easy ever. Mm. I don't care if it was all downhill and beautiful weather, like a hundred miles is a long way. Yeah. And Jesus. so, yeah, there's going to come a point where I don't want to be doing this anymore. And mm or I don't think I'm capable of doing it. And that fear starts to rise. And when I look back at all the races I've done, that's actually the only time that I remember. Like Mm -hmm. it's the impactful moment and Mm -hmm. it's why I actually do the event because that ability to be in a moment where you're completely empty, find Mm -hmm. a way to get past it because it's Mm -hmm. just running, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's just physical. I could quit. My life's not in danger. I could stop. Right. So it's not it's not something that anybody's forcing me to do. I'm voluntary suffering here. And so I want to get to that point and push beyond it, because the more often I do that, that's what allows me to not panic when something's going wrong with my business or when things get hard in my marriage or one Mm -hmm. of my kids is having problems. Like Mm -hmm. I know that most of the time, if I can just let that moment pass by without me making too big a deal of it thing. And I take a few steps that experience has taught me. I know that I can get past that. And mm-hmm. the biggest mistake most of us make is we make big decisions at really bad moments. We quit the race or we leave the marriage or we screw it at our job or whatever it is. You may make the same decision later, but to make it emotionally in that low moment almost never works out. 
Yeah, I feel you. I did make a note of you saying that in another interview that you yearn for these moments. And you just about explained it then to say what I'm hearing you say that that moment of getting to the point where it feels like things are breaking down. It feels like you can't or don't want to continue. And then finding that ability to adjust on the fly and to continue because you want to at another level. And it's not actually an emergency to not push the panic button and eject, which is a tendency that all of us have at various points. I certainly got attached early on to ejecting, to escape, right? That's the transcendental moment. That's what trains us to go through what seems impossible or difficult or painful and to kind of evolve there in the moment. I mean, that's it. Well, dude, years ago, I'll never forget a person I was coaching to do their first marathon or no, I'm sorry. It was like their third marathon. And they actually wrote me a note that said, Look, I want a training schedule that will make this race as easy as it can possibly be for me. Right. And I, I literally wrote back to them and said, why would you want to do that? Right. Because number one, it's not possible. Now, look, if you're capable of running a three-hour marathon and you go out and run because you choose to a four-hour marathon, right. that was probably <laughs> a nice experience. And I've done that a few times where I just mm-hmm. went out wanted to run with friends, just wanted to have a good time. I've even done it like at Boston, where I didn't want to be staring at the back of somebody else's shoes the whole time, just so I could knock two more minutes off of my time. Like I wanted to just, I wanted to eat orange slices from every kid that wanted to hand it to (laughs) me. I wanted to like take it all in. But Mm -hmm. most of the time, most of the time, if I'm going to go do something, which is why I don't do very many races for a second time, mm-hmm. there's only a few exceptions, because I want to go have a new painful experience somewhere. I want to be afraid when I toe the start line. I want mm-hmm. to be worried about my ability to finish whatever it is that I'm starting. Mm-hmm. And if I have no fear of that, yeah, I don't know. Then I, at this point in my career, I'd be questioning my motives for being there. If somebody's paying me a lot of yeah. money, maybe that's why I'm there. But yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't happen in the ultra world very often. <laughs> yeah, man, I totally identify with that. Again, I mean, I'm not an ultra runner or even a marathon runner, but in some of these long distance experiences that I have been part of, for example, just last year, I went to Corsica and hiked the legendary GR20. It's like one of the world's most amazing treks. It's the length of the island of Corsica. It's incredibly beautiful, and it is pretty challenging. I mean, I'm plenty fit, and I've done plenty of mountain hiking here in the high Sierras, et cetera. Even so, I mean, I didn't even go to Corsica planning to do the GR20. I went there planning to do a shorter trek, and it just so happened that the weather and the season and the timing, everything conspired. By the time I was there, I was like, oh, well, maybe this is possible. It still took me five days to kind of psych myself up to put myself at the beginning of the thing, and I was not sure that I was really up to it until really lunchtime on day one, and then I was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be amazing. And still Dude, and it was you, hard, but I yeah. mean, do you remember that feeling of those five days? Do you remember what that felt like? Yeah. I was in a hotel in a nice little town gathering information and also, uh, yeah, I was trying to, here's what it is to sum it up in a phrase that I often use. I was trying to get just ready enough 
Yeah. Okay. Because I know from my own experience that I don't need to be a hundred percent ready. I just need to be kind of 83% ready, but I was not until then. The paralysis of analysis. It's a real thing. People talk themselves out of stuff because they are afraid And look, I'm not suggesting someone go on something really dangerous without preparation, but most of the things we're thinking about are probably just going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And for you to just finally throw caution to the wind and say, I'm going to go do this thing. That's the ultimate experience for me is like whatever it is to make that decision and have that fear. I mean, in a weird way, it is like, well, we'll talk about addiction. There was nothing more thrilling in my addiction years, and I hate mm-hmm. to say it this way, than acquiring the drug or the bottle or whatever mm-hmm. it is I was doing. Yeah. That was the like, oh, a terrifying. And then very often, uh, well, this is the difference between adventure and addiction. The adventure yes. usually turned out to be very difficult, but rewarding, whereas right. the addiction turned out to be nothing but a letdown once I got started. Yes, I hear you. And let's go there into this territory of addiction. I just read Stanton Peel's classic book, Love and Addiction, which I highly recommend. Right. There's a lot in there. And he writes that addiction tends to reward the acquisition of the feeling but that the feeling itself is really not so rewarding. Whereas with more positive things that we're attached to, it's kind of the other way around or it's both. Let me ask you this. You've certainly been very public with your journey of addiction with alcohol and cocaine. I've had addictive attachments myself to most things, (laughs) let's say, I mean, starting with alcohol and amphetamines. I mean, Starting from the age of 10, really, I was drinking and speed was huge here in San Francisco, uh, starting at the age of uh, 14, 15 and porn and sex also was very attached to in various ways. And uh, man, I mean, people talk about investing in the stock market. I mean, (laughs) you know, for me, that's been nothing but a uh, crash and burn, really a bit hit on the glass pipe. So Do you have a definition of addiction that you use and that rings true for you? Yeah, I mean, it is for me as simple as this. It's the uncontrollable obsession towards something that is inherently destructive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. You've probably heard me say this somewhere, but people, some of them close to me would say, it seems like he just switched addictions. And I actually heard that and took it as criticism and responded Mm -hmm. accordingly. A lot of times it took me a few years to realize how important and necessary my obsessive nature was Mm -hmm. and what a valuable asset it is still today. I mean, you just hit on so many things, pretty much everything you listed. I've had my share of challenges in those areas. And it is about harnessing the superpower of addiction or obsession and pointing it towards positive things that uh, will actually yield. And I don't mean yield money. Rarely does that end in money. That's pretty much never at the end because money is rarely satisfying in and of itself. It's necessary. I'd rather have more of it than less of it. But none of my obsessions that I have today involve the acquisition of money. Money might be a side effect, which is great. It's a good one. But so for me, 
it really is about what the end result is. If the end result of me going on a bender with crack and, and tequila is my bank account being empty, yeah. my wife packing her bags and my car crashed and probably me sitting in jail. Those are bad things. Yeah. <laughs> we mm. actually just finished a week in the Virgin Islands with a bunch of veterans mm. uh, with severe PTSD. And I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time and I'm not a veteran, but I do a lot of work in this space around addiction, especially. And mm. of the 25 guys there, pretty much 20 or 22 of them had a substance use disorder of some type. Yeah. But we had a lot of debate mm, <laughs> around mm. what is alcoholism. How do I know if I'm addicted? One answer, of course, is you, you kind of know it when you see it. But the best thing that came out of it with this group was the understanding that if you are doing a behavior that's not serving you, then why are you doing it? Yes. And it doesn't, why do you need to label it? I, I am an addict. Yeah. I don't care if you label it or not. If alcohol yeah. is no longer serving you in the way that you hoped that it would, then stop doing it. Yeah, there's lots of great ways to define or to talk about addiction or addictive behaviors. But that one right there, if I'm attached, if I'm doing something that I used to want to do, or I think that I want to do, but I don't really want to do especially if it isn't good for me if it's not serving my future self then that's a that's an addictive attachment when i got sober a lot of my friends came to me and they're like hey dude what are you doing you don't need to quit you just need to slow down and i would say of course <laughs> don't you think i would have done that haven't you been watching <laughs> me right yeah, yeah. If i could slow down i would have and what it took me a long time to realize is they're fear or their concern was not for me. It was for themselves. Mm. And it turned out to be true. They mm. knew that I was on a path to leaving them. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, they're still that. going to the bar. They're still doing their thing. And so me making a decision that was no longer going to be part of my life also mm -hmm. meant that they were no longer going to be part of my life, mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. at that time. Right. Interestingly, through time of my group of like six guys, one of them's dead. Three of them are sober. One guy's still drinking. But in general, everybody came to the same conclusion that this isn't sustainable. But that's a hard thing is how do you cut yourself off from the people sometimes in your own family who mm. don't want you to change? It would be like I've coached couples who yeah. both need to lose a hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. One of them loses the weight. The other one doesn't lose the weight. Guess mm -hmm. what happened? Yeah. You know, they end up divorced or they right. end up with a lot of problems in their relationship because one person feels insecure and like the other person's going to hit the road. So it's interesting how change very often is a catalyst to not necessarily easier things, but necessary things. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing about the kind of peer pressure that people talk about. I don't know, man. I never experienced it. I never talk about it. It's just not a real thing for me, actually. And if yeah. someone were to say to me, like, hey, bro, like, why aren't you having, like, have a shot with us? Like, what's wrong with you? I mean, it just would be so laughable. I don't know. It's like, look, I just, I do what I want, man. It's like, it's not up to somebody else. The thing that came to mind, though, is that for me, part of the reason that I kept drinking for so long and didn't 
choose to make a more conscious change until I was 48. Okay. So I drank a lot of alcohol from the time I was 10, really 10, 11 until I was 40. Now I was decreasing my drinking in those last several years, and partly because I had started running and doing other stuff. And that's kind of goes naturally together. But part of the reason I hadn't made a conscious change, well, it didn't come to the surface. I guess the point I'm trying to get to is like, for me, choosing to stop drinking was the last thing to change. It wasn't the first thing. It wasn't like, mm. oh, I got sober. Then I got healthy. Then I started running. Then I started meditating. Mm. Then I started doing this and everything else turned golden, so to speak. No, I gradually got healthier. I gradually got more active again, like mostly in my forties. And the end result of that was enough of my consciousness surfacing that it finally became clear to me that this just doesn't really fit for me anymore. So that is not the standard sort of like deep dive, rock bottom, catastrophe, and then radical turnaround kind of experience. Yeah. Uh, and I know, though, that my experience or something similar is also very common. It's not yeah. like most people or a lot of people out there necessarily go through this kind of hard crash and necessity of like a full stop radical 180. So yeah. how does your experience relate to that? And I mean, what do you have to say to people who are like, Hey, I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate everything you just said and you sharing all that. And I would say in my own story, there was a recognition finally that nobody was coming to save me. <laughs> and even during my worst addiction years, I was a binger. So dude, I would go off the deep end for three months or six months or whatever, and just destroy my life and my body and my relationships and everything. And then I would suck it up and I would move and I would start mm -hmm. running again. And I mm -hmm. would use running as a mechanism to get healthy and fit. And I would feel great and look great. And you know, do all those things and then repeat the cycle over mm. and over. And mm. what I wanted, I know for sure what I wanted was someone to actually force me to quit because I needed to quit. When I was in a down cycle, mm -hmm. better get it out of the way. It was disastrous. I wasn't capable of maintaining anything, no relationships, not jobs, not anything. Mm. And when I was in an up cycle, I was the top salesman, had girlfriends. I mean, life was good. And it took the recognition that I had to take the first step yeah. to change. You can just be sober curious. It is about how something is serving you. You don't have to come to the conclusion that I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. It's just like, okay, you know what? I want my business to grow. And the three drinks I'm having every single night are screwing up my mornings. And I yeah. know that I would do better if I got up and exercised. And I mean, some of it is just rationalization of what's happening and cutting yourself some slack, which is not something I'm good at. I still have the voices that tell me that I'm not so much worthless. Who am I to do these things or mm. to say these things? A little imposter syndrome and all of that. I mean, that's still part of who I am. I'm going all over the place on this answer, but being oh, vulnerable is the, the best thing that I've learned how to do. Whether it's on a podcast with you or on stage with Tony Robbins, or I don't care where I am 
if I can look at it like my job is to cut myself open right here and dump all this crap out mm-hmm. for everybody to see, the message is clear. Nobody actually cares about your stuff as much as you think they do. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? for sure. I mean, yeah. We are basically self-centered beings that think about ourselves most of the time. And mm-hmm. or we think about we think that other people are watching us and they have strong opinions. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But in general, they don't really care. And the things that we think we're screwing up aren't nearly as like dazzling to those people. For and sure, so, yeah, for me, the moment of true clarity and of growth was a few years in when I recognized that running and 12-step recovery in conjunction, just mm. one of those wouldn't have done it for me. If I'd just mm. gone to A meetings, I don't think I would have made it. If I had just run, I don't think I would have made it. But the beautiful mm. combination of those two things for the first five years or so of my recovery mm. allowed for the physicality I needed and the self-examination that was necessary to just figure out what the hell was good for me. Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's like we have quite different experiences and yet have that very much in common. That is kind of coming to the eventual clarity about what's good for me, what's better for me, and also having to take responsibility for that myself or yourself or ourselves. I mean, for so many years, man, I would go to therapy or I would just be like laying in my bed or whatever at home, just wishing that somebody else. Like you said, that somebody else would just do something for me, would make me happier, would solve my whatever, my my hangover, my relationship issue, my whatever it was. And it's like, well, that's just that's not going to happen. But I did spend a lot of time wishing that it would for sure. And to come back to the question of addiction and drinking in particular. I mean, it sounds to me like maybe it's just kind of how you're wired, but you know, your cycle, your sine wave is just more extreme, right? And maybe that was true for you from the very beginning, like from a young age. For me, it wasn't quite so extreme. Even though I was drinking and doing drugs as a young person, I wasn't going to the extremes that a lot of my friends were even at that time. And so as someone in my 20s and 30s, I wasn't, again, like... I wasn't, well, I did crash the car a couple of times, but I wasn't getting arrested. I didn't blow up my business. I, I, I did blow up a lot of relationships, but it wasn't like a crash and burn. And for a long time, it seemed like something that didn't really need fixing. Yeah. But then again, the end result was like, I finally, and I got to the point where I'm just like feeling better. I want to feel even more better. Yeah. yeah. I want to well, feel when better. I finally quit, I didn't quit forever. Mm-hmm. By that point, I'd been to rehab. I'd been to church. Like I tried a bunch of stuff like mm-hmm. outside of me to sort of force me to get my act together. Mm-hmm. And when I did finally quit, I literally just quit for 30 days. Like that mm-hmm. was what was in my mind. I'm like, I, I'm going to run every day and I'm going to go to an A meeting every day and I'm going to see what happens. Like I was pretty desperate and I just wanted to see how my life would change. And my life yeah. got so much better. Yeah. I, and I'd been to like, I'd been to a hundred AA meetings, but dude, I'd gone to AA meetings to learn how to control my drinking because it was really messing up my drug use. Like that's how <laughs> I viewed it. Like, <laughs> you know, there was no, like, I wasn't uh-huh. interested in quitting. I was interested yeah. in controlling. 
And this time when I finally got it, I went in there with an open heart and a curious mind. Mm -hmm. I listened to people who'd come before me. I didn't like adhere to everything they said, but Mm -hmm. I got enough nuggets. I followed some guidelines. I got a sponsor. I ran every day. I went to a meeting every day. And in 30 days, I couldn't come up with a reason not to keep doing it. And that stretched to 90 days. And by the time it was all over, I went three years where I actually ran every day for three years. And I went to a meeting every day for three years. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. Not because I, Mm -hmm. at some point along the way, it wasn't even about, I didn't need to go to a meeting so that I wouldn't drink or do drugs. I needed to go to a meeting so I could learn how not to be an asshole or so I could actually start showing up for other people and not just myself. Like, I needed all of that so that I could become like a decent human being, honestly. Well, what you're getting at right there is something that, again, just part of my experience, you know, and also how I relate to kind of the classical addiction narrative. For me, at least what I believe is that because the substance isn't the problem, abstinence itself is not the cure. And when you say I did it for 30 days or 90 days, and people talk about 12 step, I think that the it is the not drinking, right? And the it is something deeper, obviously. I mean, that's what leads us to the attachment, to the unhealthy attachment. It's not the drinking itself. It's something else that was missing. Not drinking is not that hard. Figuring out the rest of life is the complicated part. And I don't know if you're a, are you a Gabor Mate fan? So his latest book is called The Myth of Normal. And I won't go into it, but it's so right. freaking brilliant. And it talks about trauma-informed disease and trauma-informed uh, yeah. addictions. I'm not a person that got so caught up in the why that I forgot to just deal with what's next. Mm -hmm. Too many people get mired in the why am I the way I am instead Mm -hmm. of focusing on how do I get myself out of this? (laughs) And my joke is always like, if I have a bullet wound in my chest, sure, Mm -hmm. I'd like to know who shot me, but I'm way more concerned with saving my life and getting healthy again. Then I can take a look at some future date at how I got myself in that situation. Right, right, right. By looking forward and finding ways to do some good, powerful therapy. It's not just running. It's not just AA. It's a combination of these things. It's having conversations like you and I are having. You realize there's so much more to the process, like you just said, than just not drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, I didn't identify with the sort of traditional addiction narrative. No one had ever given me a definition of addiction that made sense to me or that felt like me, et cetera. And so just the process of getting healthier kind of of my own accord is really what led me there. And so I tend to put this all in the context of well-being, just like, do I want to feel good? Do I want to feel better physically, mentally? And so to bring it back to running or any kind of physical activity, if you go and build more of that into your life, that's going to lead you in the right direction. Period. It just can't not. It's going to do good things for you and much more than just the basic physical benefit. It's going to lead you literally in the right direction. 
Way more. Well, my first marriage, I got married, of course, when I was deep in my addiction. Mm. Of course, I married someone whose father was an alcoholic. So she was totally comfortable with my brand of craziness. Yeah. But she understood after I got sober, it's one of the funnier things. We haven't been married for years, but we're still good friends. And she still laughs about like, she would just come to me and say, I think you need to go for a run. And like, that was our secret code for you're being a dick. Why don't you go do something else for a while? And I discovered that that outlet did burn off a fair amount of the crazy so that I could focus on what I needed to. I mean, that's part of the addictive brain. I've said this before, but like if there's a roulette wheel in my brain, unlike a normal roulette wheel where there's one ball in my brain, there's a ball for every slot. (laughs) And my normal way of functioning is that they're just, they're bouncing and clattering around in there all the time. But when I run, they start to settle into their spots and a couple miles into a run, I will feel this peace Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. quiet and the things that I actually need to be thinking about that are important, or maybe it's nothing, maybe it's appreciation of the beauty around me that begins to rise to the top. And Mm-hmm. I have to do the spiritual things. And for me, that means like breath work, meditation. I don't do a ton of meditation, but I use breath work as my meditation and mm-hmm. I use running as my meditation. I will put on sometimes even music that's more chanting or meditation mm-hmm. type music while I'm running. And mm-hmm. it's just all I can hear is the breath in my ears. And I get into this rhythm. Unfortunately, I don't feel that way often enough. But when mm-hmm. you do feel that way, it's magical. And that's the beauty of even getting to a place where you can do those things. Yes, that I just can't say and hear and talk enough about the benefit of just being more in my body, right? Stan Peel, that same book I mentioned, Love and Addiction, makes the point, as many others do. I think as Mate makes the same point about the myth of normal. The flip side, the myth of addiction is that it's something unusual. Actually, no, not at all. We're all wired this way, just waiting yeah. for something to help us escape. And part yeah. of the reason is because of the way we live. We're not in our bodies enough. It's just a basic truth. I mean, my God, we need to use this thing. We need to use this thing. And that's a big part of what keeps us sane. You know, moderation is boring. I mean, you want to talk about boring. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm trying for the extremes, but because I'm not afraid to try hard things where there's a really great chance of failure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't spend as much time in the middle ground as other people. Mm. A lot of times I'm either up here or I'm down here, but I like it that way. I want to have ethereal life-changing moments. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I also want to understand how to deal with depression, which certainly it went hand in hand with my addiction for many years and Mm -hmm. understanding just how to deal with those feelings that I don't Mm -hmm. understand. I don't want us to run out of time without talking about it because this new expedition of mine is the embodiment of what I was just saying, the low places and the high points. I see. Okay. There (laughs) you you go. It's uh, the literal version of the metaphor. And what is the thing about the number? 5.8. Why is it 5.8? 5.8. Thanks for asking. Just to fill in the blanks. I'm going to go in 2024 from the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the planet, to the top of Mount Everest, human powered. It's about 4,500 miles between those two points, but it's Mm -hmm. actually only 5.8 vertical miles. 
I'm going to do a free dive in the Dead Sea and mm -hmm. try to add another 100 feet to the lowest place that I can reach. Okay, yeah. And then I'm going to paddle across the Dead Sea to Jordan, run about 2,000 miles across the Arabian Desert, row 1,000 miles across the Indian Ocean, mountain yes. bike a couple thousand miles to the base of Mount Everest, and then mm -hmm. climb to the top. So fantastic. It sounds so easy in that 20 second soundbite. Yeah. I mean, um, it sounds doable, man. Okay. Literally, if right. you could cover the distance from the Dead Sea to the top of Everest in a straight line, it would be less than a 10K. Yeah, vertically. Yeah. And right. you're, you're all, every human on the planet is within that little tiny sliver of atmosphere. And totally, yeah. we spend half or more of our time arguing with other people about mundane nonsense that is just so life-sucking and a waste of our time when if you're not getting out there in nature and testing your body in whatever way is right for you and giving gratitude and trying something that's hard that you might actually fail at and teaching your kids to do the same. Mm -hmm. Like, what yes. the hell are you doing here? Why are you even here if you're not doing those things? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, it's not just about just going to school or just doing the job or whatever. It's like, what are our actual goals? I mean, I've done a little piece of that, just walking up the Kumbu Valley, flying yeah. to Lukla yeah. and uh, walk Beautiful. up to base camp. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was fantastic. I just did that as, a few months ago, actually. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. I saw that you were in Nepal. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so cool. Well, okay. So I got two rapid fire things. I mean, depression we didn't really yeah. get to that. But for me yeah. also like depression and addiction, they're like, it's like the two vines of the ayahuasca. Yeah. They're just intertwined. It's almost yeah. like one doesn't exist without the other. And yeah. so do you have two or three sentences to say about your experience with depression and the interrelationship between depression and addiction? I do. And I mean, I came to the understanding that for me, my depression was not what would be classified as clinical depression. Mm -hmm. Mine was very circumstantial, and so often it was related to my addiction issues. Not surprisingly, if you go on a six-day crack binge and you <laughs> spend all your money, you might be a little depressed right after that. <laughs> There's a revelation. Well right said, there, right? yes. <laughs> but in later years, long after I got sober, I still had some bouts of being down, and I did find that a lot of that was pressure and circumstantial and still not understanding what was going on with me. So I would just say that do see a professional, but also talk to your friends, talk to people and try to get an understanding if you're feeling down and depressed. You know, as I was saying, just last week, I was on an island with 25 veterans. And while we were there, two of the men that were there had friends who took their own lives. Mm -hmm. And it's real and you have to ask for help. And I got help. I used my sponsor and uh, I understood that the best way to get myself out of a funk was to help somebody else get out of theirs. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. When I'm lost and I feel stuck, I help somebody else get unstuck and find their way. And magically, mm -hmm. I find mine. That is also to say, though, there is medication. I was on Paxil for several mm. years early in my recovery, and mm. I don't know if it was the right decision or not at the time, but it was, I made the decision. It did help me, 
Yeah. And when I got off of it, I used meditation and breath mm -hmm. work to learn how to manage some of the same depression that I was feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks for sharing. What I would say very briefly, my experience is like addiction is depressing, both during and as a result, and especially alcohol just is a depressant, not just in the moment, but over the long term. And that then the general state of kind of feeling low, whether it's just a little bit or a lot, is often, I mean, for me, was a symptom of not living right somehow. Yeah. And I had to be willing to see that as true because the fact is you're, it fucking sucks in the moment. And yeah. it can be yeah. easy to just for that to be overwhelming. And it is overwhelming. Yeah. But to take it as a message and like, well, what is it that this is pointing to that needs to change somehow? It wasn't just the drinking. It was other things too. But as I began to change some of those things, then some of that depression began to lift. And at the same time, it's a pattern like so many, it gets wired in. And so it's still a groove that, you know, that's part of my psychology. Totally. Yeah. Look, I still get down. I think the other thing is I cut myself some slack on those days. I'll email people and I'll cancel my calls and I'll just say, hey, look, man, I'm sorry yeah. to do this to you, but I just, I need a break today. Uh, and yeah, self learning that, that self care and understanding that anybody who writes me off or doesn't want to be my friend anymore <laughs> or whatever, because I bailed on them because I was having a bad day, then that's good yeah. riddance. It's, yeah. it is. And then, Dude, I'll wrap myself up in a blanket with my wife and get I'll suck her into my mm -hmm. uh, downward uh, trend. But we'll sit there and watch TV and eat popcorn and just take a day and allow ourselves to just be and not yeah. feel the pressure of, oh, my God, yeah. look at all the things I'm not getting done today. Well, and take the pressure off of trying to fix it, because that's a bit of a trap in itself of like trying to push this feeling away, right? Like any other feeling, if yeah. all we're trying to do is push it away, I don't want to feel this. Well, that's not going to work. You got to go through it, yeah. right? You got to feel it and just be in it for a little bit. And like yeah. you said, allow yourself that slack. Appreciate that. Okay. So the last question, what's something that recently, like in the last six months or so, that you have learned that has changed the way that you live now? Wow. Well, I trust my instincts and I'm going to go right to the answer that popped into my head. And it's deep, but I'll keep it short. My wife is six years into a really serious uh, battle with cancer. Yeah. And so every single day of my life, it when I'm home is in the role of caretaking to some degree. And so what's interesting is you said six months, but in the last six months, things have altered to a point where I had to really let go of outcomes again. I had to relearn the lesson because it's one thing when it's me. It's another thing when I watch someone else that I love suffer tremendously every single day in pain. Mm. And I cannot do a damn thing about it. I can't take it away. I can only try to love and support her. So the thing that I am learning again for the umpteenth time is 
to be fully present with her. When I'm with her, when we're done today, I'm getting ready to start traveling again in a couple of days. So her mother has to come in and stay with her. But like to just be fully present, not be half present because mm-hmm. I am kick ass at doing 12 <laughs> things at one time. But I'm the guy that says, huh, eight <laughs> times because I only half heard the question that she asked me. Mm-hmm. And so it really, it pays dividends if I can just give eye contact, be fully present, listen, respond, don't try to fix or mansplain and just really uh, be there for her. And I get the privilege of being able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, wow, that's uh haven't had to deal with that kind of a situation. Someone close to me, I really feel for you there. And thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And just to hear you I talk about making the most of the time that you've got together and that presence and it, like you said, even just the eye contact yeah. is something that we can do. We can kind of do it here over Zoom. And I feel it. I feel connected with you. Yeah. And it's something that we just don't get enough of in the world these days. And yeah. So No, thank you. I agree completely. I know you mean it. I would also say my take two answer would be, I also have, I came back from Nepal with a little hip injury. Mm. And I've been nursing it now for two months and I haven't been able to run. So it's Ooh. almost shocking that I can even put a sentence together because <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I yeah. miss it every day. I miss it so much. And mm. I am a guy that never lets the weather stop me. If I plan to run for three hours today and it's snowing or raining or it's 110, I'm my ass is going out the door and I'm doing it. It's a lesson I relearn over and over. But, you know, today I'm a little hobbled and I get the privilege of missing doing the thing that I love right now. So yeah, yeah. don't take it for granted. Don't waste your time. Get off mm. the sofa and get your ass out the door. Yeah, <laughs> That's my yeah. lesson. Yeah. Appreciation. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Well, I hear that. Charlie, man, it's been so great to spend some time with you. I like you, man. I really appreciate your presence and I really appreciate your openness and willingness to do this. I wish you the best, man, in your personal life and for your adventures coming up. We'll see. We still haven't decided what leg of the Dead Sea to Everest you're going to join me on. So we're going to figure that out. We'll do that (laughs) offline. Yeah, yeah. Well, I need more adventure partners. So, all right. You got it. Down. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you too, brother. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure, Charlie. Thanks so much for being on Brothers and Teachers. And I hope to see you again soon. You will. I'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this conversation, please do take a moment to visit the episode page and click the little heart icon to show everyone else that you liked it. It's a very small thing to ask, and it really helps other people find my content here on Substack. I appreciate you making that small gesture of appreciation. You'll also find the questions there that I posted at the bottom of the show notes. 
which you can read and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at bowendwelly.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives. Just a final reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And, of course, you can always reach me by email. And, of course, you can always reach me by email or find me on social media. All the info is there on the Substack page as well. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon.